Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Yana Byers, and we're here today with Carolyn Conley, Professor Emerita at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. We're going to discuss her new book, the delightfully and provocatively titled Debauched, Deranged, and Desperate, Women Tried for Homicide in London, 1674 to 1913. Welcome, Carolyn. Thank you so much. All right, well, let's get down to business here. Okay, my first question... So you're the author of The Unwritten Law, Criminal Justice in Victorian Kent, Melancholy Accidents, The Meaning of Violence in Post-Famine Ireland, and Certain Other Countries, Homicide and National Identity in England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, 1867 to 1892. Now, the Venn diagram, if I were to draw one, would be pretty tight, right? The British Isles in the late 19th century. But with this volume, you've added uh, another couple of centuries, and I find this very curious. So my question is, how did you come to write this book? How does it fit into your, the narrative of your research life? And uh, you know, what made you decide to take the plunge back in time to the early modern era? Well, um, actually, I, mean, I think it's only limited by sources. Um, the Kent book began in 1859 because that's when the record started. Um, the... Ireland book began in 1867 because that's when those records started. And um, when I found out about the um, um, Old Bailey Online, which is wonderful and actually runs from 1674 to 1913, I was very excited because I think historians, when I taught, I always talked about you know change over time. I taught British history from Stonehenge to Maggie Thatcher. And I always felt a little guilty about the fact that I always dealt in this three decades and, you know, as if there was nothing before or after. And I was really excited that I finally had sources that allowed me to do a really long run. I think this is probably unmatched in terms of anybody being able to, except for the Old Bailey papers, to go through this long a section that's actually consistent over um, centuries. So it was very exciting. I felt like, oh, I'm doing what historians do. I'm actually looking at change over time instead of a snapshot of 30 years here or there. 
So um, it was totally the sources that made it possible. Um, learning the 18th century context took a little practice, and certainly the reviewers um, suggested that maybe I didn't know the 18th century as well as the 19th, but that's definitely true. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Well, I'm a 17th century historian, and I'm glad you're. Uh, I'm glad you're here. I find the later years a little bit more depressing. But um, so, I mean, this leads you know, to another question. 18th century depressing. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. But uh, this, I mean, so I want to. This leads me to this other question. This thing I really want to talk about, which is the your sources. So tell me about the Old Bailey. Okay, the Old Bailey is the, was the building where the Central Criminal Court for London um, met. And thanks to people being very conscientious there, um, in 1674, peop- they began printing accounts of all the trials. Now, in the early years, when I say all the trials, it was pretty haphazard. And it was printed for public consumption originally, um, sort of the dateline of its day. It was, it was entertainment. But... Um, it continued. And from 1674 to 1913, except for a couple of sessions in the um, early 18th century, there is a complete run of all the trials. Now, sometimes all they tell you is Joe Smith was tried for stealing five shillings and found guilty. Other times they give you the names of the lawyers and transcripts and testimony. Um, But the point is you have all of the trials or almost all the trials which is amazing and makes it possible to do so many things. A lot of the work that's been done on understanding the way the criminal justice system works is based on the Old Bailey Papers Um, because the British didn't write down rules. They just sort of did the thing and then figured out how they did it afterwards. And if you go through the Old Bailey, you can figure out how many times attorneys appear. When does the defense attorney first appear? When do they first do this? When do they first do that? So it's a remarkable source. And um, a wonderful group of scholars, Clive Emsley, Bob Shoemaker, and some others, actually got funding and arranged to put the entire thing online, which is probably the best thing to happen to British social historians in my time. Maybe ever. Yeah, yeah no, that's amazing. It, it really, you know, yeah, you're able to see this pretty standard set of information um, through the same lens. I mean, obviously, nothing. Nothing stays the same for 200 years, 300 years. But yeah, and the fact that they're online is fabulous. Although that, I mean, not having to go to London it's is a mix, you know, a mix yeah, of work. Yeah, my other three books I got to spend a lot of time in London and Dublin and Edinburgh. And this one I got to spend a lot of time in the Arabian Library. <laughs> yeah, fair. All right, so let's uh, talk about your argument. Just directly, what's the argument you make with this book? I think basically my argument is that the attitudes towards women, and I think this this um, goes to for women in general, but especially towards women tried for homicide, changed drastically in some really interesting ways. Um, the title sort of suggests um, in the early period, uh, women were seen. You see the evil woman. The woman is the term wench is used in strumpets. Um, women are often charged for hom- with homicide if two men fight over them. The idea is that women are sort of the source of evil. By the early 20th century, and there are lots of changes along the way, women are viewed as these lovely, incompetent creatures 
who couldn't possibly be evil because they really don't have the mental capacity to be evil. Um, which is fascinating, first, because the progression or evolution or whatever is not what is certainly not linear. Um, the status of women changes several times over these centuries, and it's not a straight line by any means. Um, and second, and I think this was the thing that just sort of hung with me, um, women in the late 17th and 18th century were given credit for being rational beings capable of being held responsible for their actions in ways that women in the early 20th century were not, at which meant the women in the early 20th century were less likely to be burned at the stake. But there's also an incredibly um, condescending and insulting aspect to that. And I think for me, it was sort of trying to figure out, okay, did the status of women improve or actually decline in that they are less seen as less capable? Mm-hmm. All right. So let's start um, Let's start at the beginning of this. So how would you characterize the way female murderers were treated from the mid-17th to the mid-18th centuries? Um, the 17th century um, is very much, um, as I said, evil. They're all um, winches. Most of the women tried um, in the uh, late 17th century were accused under a really uh, vile statute um, that was designed to prevent illegitimate children. Basically, if a woman was found with a dead newborn and she was unmarried, she was assumed to have murdered that infant, um, regardless of any other evidence. The fact that you had an illegitimate child and that child was dead means you were a murderer. And those women were um, executed at a very high rate in that period. There was this assumption that women were evil. Um, The other women tried in the early 18th century were, as I said, often accused in sword fights and bar brawls, which was fascinating at first. And then when I got into it, I realized if there was a bar brawl and a woman was present, she was assumed to have somehow instigated it. There were instances where two men fought over a woman and she was not even there at the time. And yet she was charged with homicide for being the occasion of sin. So there was this sort of assumption that women are evil women, instigate women are responsible. Um, that, and that's pretty much from the late 17th to the mid 18th century, that's pretty much what you have. You also have, of course, in the early 18th century, the very lively sort of um, rogues gallery of people. Um, this is the Mall Flanders era, era. And you have um, women actively engaged. There were a lot of women who owned pubs and um, they talked, uh, several of those women were sort of talking about how hard it was to keep control and to avoid violence in their pubs, that sort of thing. So you see women as being very involved and women as also the courts assume women are not only responsible, that w- but that women instigate violence even when they're not in the room. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just by their, the, the nature of their being, yeah. they are, they drive, women, women drive men mad. That's, that's a truism, right? So that's what you cover in your first chapter, and then you move forward to cover the following century in uh, your next chapter titled Passion and the Frailty of Human Nature. So here we see the developments in the nature of the prosecutions as well. So more police testimony, testimony, more involvement from lawyers, a general tightening of the procedures and the like. Um, But we also see a difference in the way women are portrayed and treated when they come before the court. So I'd like you to comment on on that whole issue. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think one of the big changes is 
and, and one of the things that we have never, I've seen it never fully explained, but the fascinating thing is at the end of the 18th, the 19th century, there is a sea change culturally. Um, and women, the whole society, but especially women, are now the whole idea of the domestic goddess. She's supposed to stay in the home. She's supposed to be quiet. She's supposed to be meek. Um, she is at the mercy of her passions. There's just this complete change in attitudes, especially towards women. And the women who are charged in this period, and there is a huge drop-off in the number of women charged. For one thing, the courts, juries stop convicting women under the infanticide statute. And the courts simply stop prosecuting them because once they realize we can't get a conviction, it's not worth, they actually change the law because it's clear they won't do that. There is this sympathy in general towards people, creatures, everyone. And that means, uh, for example, the burning women at the stake stops. A lot of um, things that strike us as particularly cruel are done away with. But there is also an enormous suppression of women. The women pub owners uh, in the the very end of the 18th century, there are prosecutions for, for women who are there to be dancing or singing or outdoors are just in general, there is this enormous women should stay in the home and they should be quiet and they should spend all their time in prayer. And there's this real suppression of anything that seems like fun, almost a puritanical, though it's evangelical, it's not puritanical, but um, this change happens. Um, And their attitude towards female criminals is more sympathetic. Um, In the 18th century, women in the mid 18th century, women who've committed homicide were fascinating. Um, uh, people like Sarah Malcolm, but by the turn of the century and in the early 19th century, they were much less publicized and much more likely to be seen as sort of creatures at the mercy of their passions. They're still punished, but there is recognition that, um, they somehow were in love. Often a man is to blame, um, they even go back and rewrite some of the early 18th century crimes. New accounts of them are given in which a man is somehow the instigator, even though in the original crime, sometimes they actually invent men to explain crimes that happened. So there is this gradual trend towards women being seen as um, creatures who should stay at home and be quiet because they can't control their passions. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. All right, one of the threads running through the book is the idea of madness as a mitigating factor, which we see for the first time here. And then we also run across the idea that the Irish are simply savages that can't be accounted for. <laughs> but there's some deeper economic and cultural factors at work, right? You write, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote you here, even though the rate of women accused of killing during brawls rose during the second quarter of the 19th century, two thirds of the defendants were acquitted and only two cases resulted in heavy sentences. We see here the development of the idea of mitigating factors, yeah? So can you comment on that? Well, yeah. I mean, I think there is a recognition that, um, and, and I'm not sure, 
that's specifically important balls. Okay, in general, uh, women are seen as a at the mercy of men. You no longer see the idea that a woman that um, is present for a fight must have started it. There is an exception or even a, an assumption of female weakness. So that the idea that, well, if a woman killed a man in a brawl, it must have been an accident because she doesn't have that physical strength or that malice. There's also um, a recognition of that poverty, which is actually higher in London in the uh, early 19, in the uh, third and fourth decades of the 19th century than it would have been in the 18th century. Um, it's, it's effect there's an increase in prostitution, which they sort of try to delicately get around. I love, I think it's fascinating that the metaphor for, or the euphemism for prostitute was an unfortunate girl. There's this sort of implied recognition that, you know, they are, they are victims um, and that, that they're having to do this. So I think there is this mitigation. In terms of insanity, there is a legal change. Prior to the 19th century, um, there was no, you couldn't have a criminal finding of insanity in a courtroom. So I think a lot of cases, especially cases in which women killed their children, probably just weren't brought to court because they weren't going to convict a woman who was clearly insane and they didn't have a legal procedure to do that. So that you increase in the 19th century because now there is a law saying you can do that. You can declare someone um, criminally insane and have them um, held um, at the queen's pleasure, as, and as it were. Um, so there is procedural issues that make insanity an issue where before that it wasn't, or, I mean, it, obviously it happened, but there was no formal procedure to deal with it. Okay. All right. So then in chapter three, becoming women and ogresses, um, brilliant titles. God, you do really well with that. So that, <laughs> that's so fun. So that covers the mid 19th century, 1834 to 73 specifically. And it continues in this vein, but it seems like there's a cultural, cultural like double down. Right. Um, so fewer women are hung for killing men, but loads of women are tried for killing their children. Um, and again, yeah, I think the big thing is, and, and when I first saw this, it was just for everybody. And this is where the long durée really makes a difference. Because I and everyone that has written in the 19th century, we knew women always kill children. Even in the 20th century, that's true. Women usually kill children. And when I did the 18th century stuff, women didn't kill children, except for the, the neonicide cases. But you, I think I had like four cases of women accused of killing their own children. And I was just astonished and talked to friends who worked in the field. And we all agreed that this was why we needed to look at longer frames. What's happening? Did women in the Victorian period suddenly start killing their children when they hadn't before? And that's kind of disturbing. Or... More likely the case, um, first place, um, uh, child mortality was so high in the 18th century, probably a child dies, there wouldn't have been a lot of attention, is this neglect, is this abuse, or is this just one of the many diseases we have? And also, as I said, until there's an insanity plea, you're not going to want to try a respectable woman who killed her child because you don't have any options for how you're going to deal with this. By the 19th century, most of these women, certainly married women who kill their children, are found insane, which is quasi-respectable. Um, and this is where the numbers really come in. It is also the fact that 
the sorts of crime. I mean, there is this huge spike in the number of women tried for killing their children, which, as I said, I think is probably because they know what to do about it now or have at least procedures about it now. Um, I think the decline in killing men is partly because women are kept in the home so much more. Um, women, except for prostitutes or, or Irish women who are considered sort of beneath, uh, can, beyond the pale, literally, um, they women don't have the opportunity to kill men outside than their husbands. Now, one of the things that still amazes me, the rate of women killing their husbands is absolutely flat from 1674 to 1913. It's the same numbers, which suggests that killing your husband is sort of a private decision. Not necessarily. <laughs> I probably shouldn't laugh at that, but that's interesting. What I think is also funny is that, that women who kill their husbands are never found insane. Because it could never be an irrational act. There's always right. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> same same thing. Yeah. Um, but the idea that that's 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 something you can count on is that a certain number of women will eventually kill their husbands. Um, yeah, <laughs> and will not be found insane no, for it. Really they will. Yeah. They will be, you know, subject to the to the law. I guess so. Bright side there. <clears throat> Okay, so then as we move in, chapter four, incapable of forming a sound judgment, 1874 to 1913, I found this chapter rage-inducing, right? As I said, I'm, like, I'm in the 17th century. I like the idea that women can be held responsible for crime. Um, but, you know, and there's no benefit at being angry at, the, at anyone in the, the past, much less an entire cultural shift, right? It's an unfocused rage. It can't be sated. But that said, you know, here it is. I'm still mad about the Library of Alexandria. Why wouldn't I be mad about this? But, uh, so, yeah, right? So this, the, the point of change is complete, as you discover, as you cover it in Chapter 4. So basically, uh, you know, what's the perception of women here? I think it's really fascinating is that the female reproductive system means that women are irrational all the time. There are women who are found insane because they haven't started their period yet, because they're having their period, because they are pregnant, because they're not pregnant, because they're breastfeeding, because they're not breastfeeding, because they're menopausal. And my favorite is, is a middle-aged woman who killed her husband, who, who frankly had it coming. But, the, but the, the doctor says, well, a woman of her age can't possibly know what she's doing. And as, as a woman of a certain age, I go, wait a minute. Of course, the anger is sort of balanced. Um, 200 years earlier, that woman would have been burned at the stake, literally, because killing her husband was petty treason. Now there's this sort of, it's all right, dear, you can't possibly have known what you were doing, so you'll go to prison for a year. Um, and, and like you, my first reaction is anger, but then I sort of think, well, wait a minute, <laughs> which is worse? <laughs> right, yeah. It's kind of strange. Um, women are... <laughs> being less harshly punished because they're assumed to be incapable of being responsible, which is annoying. But if you sort of take the very unfortunate premise that women are never going to be treated as rational human beings capable of making their own decisions, but not, you know, equally, which is worse. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm still going with that. But I do think, that, um, I think it's really important because um, you know, early 20th century, this is the period, the, the suffragettes are beginning to appear. This is a period in which women are supposedly getting rights. And what you're seeing in the courts is 
as I said, the doctors, more and more expert testimony coming in saying basically women, you know, are always, always hormonally driven one way or another and can't possibly be trusted to make decisions, which is a pretty um, annoying position. Yeah. yeah. It's really frustrating. Um, particularly, it would be probably less frustrating if I didn't sometimes still hear it. Yeah. Right? And I don't know whether this may have been several decades ago, but but there was this whole premise of um, uh, being premenopausal as a, a grounds for homicide. Uh, there was a woman who killed somebody and, and th- this idea that some women are, are literally going to psychotic rages. And it was one of those, well, as a feminist, what are you supposed to say? Um, you know, and, and I think that that's one of those dilemmas. Um, yes, we want to be treated as rational human beings, but we want to be treated fairly. And, um, yeah, we're not there. Yeah, and these things, no, these things need not be mutually exclusive, but no. clearly they are right now. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, uh, so I think this is interesting as uh, – one of the things, you know, and I teach uh, or have taught in the past the history of feminism and feminist theory, and I find that people tend to have this conception that there was like the position of women was horrible, and it suddenly get and it like it gets better straight on, like this progress narrative, and then we got the vote, and then and Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, woo, and I and you know it's. <laughs> And it's really important to have these kinds of, uh, this kind of work to demonstrate that is by no means a, a straight line of progress. It is cyclical and it is also the same thing, the same fight over and over again. That thinking, oh, we've won this, doesn't mean we've won this. Um, that there are certain fights that, that women are going to probably always have to have. Um, I don't know, I'm, I'm feeling a little more upbeat right this minute, but um, there are. And also, I think it's important to recognize, and this is one of the things that, um, this is the first book I've written that's just about women, because I was always a little bit worried about ghettoization of of women's history, Um, the fact that to think of women as a monolith is very wrong for the majority of the world population. And... um, Anytime you think of women being oppressed, there are probably some upper class women who are part of the oppression. It's not a yeah, absolutely right. right. It's you know, and for sure, I mean, the contours there. You know, it's talking about our suffragettes, and in this country, their willingness to throw black women straight under a bus. Um, you know, we we know this true. Yeah, and in the Irish women, <laughs> literally beyond the pale. Um, it's, there, there is a lot of kind of good questions. So I want to, um, I want to quote the last chap, the last sentence of this chapter, which is, you know, it follows with the conclusion, but in some ways, the last chapter of your argument, the last sentence of your argument. So, and it just sums it up so well. And it is the only women being executed for murder in the early 20th century were baby farmers. Those whose victims were the only people considered more vulnerable than the women themselves. <sighs> Yeah, there we go. And it was, um, it, it, it's ironic. One of the things that was painful to me, one of the undertones that I kind of never addressed, is the fact that women and children were always sort of almost in competition in the courts because um, you have this enormous 
a lot of women who are killed because of the, the statute regarding neonaticide, um, which a woman who gives birth by herself in the streets and then her child dies and then less than 48 hours later she hangs for murder is, is just horrifying. And there is this sort of, and then the baby farmers, which, and, and I mean, some of the baby farmers were absolutely horrible, but you also have a situation in which women, working women were saying when they were beginning to regulate baby farming, wait a minute, I have to work. And if I have to work, there has to be somebody I can pay to keep my child. My child will starve otherwise. And I think the, the, the tendency in Parliament, of course, was just to say, well, we'll stop this altogether without even considering the, the difficulties that this placed women in. And I think that's one of the real tragedies of this is that women and children almost sort of have to compete for recognition in Parliament. And, and there's very recognition of the fact that they both need protection and laws that look after their mutual interests. Yeah. Sure. Of course. Yeah. And this... The ongoing, I mean, centuries of the idea that if you uh, if you punish women for having children, they'll stop it. Exactly. Oh stop having children. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> and, and of course, um, by the early 20th century, um, one of the things that uh, you start having um, active prosecution of abortionists, which had not, you ha- didn't appear in the courts before. Mm-hmm. Which is I mean, an interesting question. Is it transparent? Do they know there is like, is that because no one is finding abortionists or like? No. Well, most you know, of they're, they're there. It's pretty clear. You know, they, they've been doing this for 20 or 30 years and all of a sudden the courts have decided, oh, well, some of the courts, some of the judges even say, I don't like this law and I wish it wasn't there and I don't think we should be doing this. So, yeah. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Um, so what's next? You're emerita. The world is your oyster. What are you thinking about? Okay. And I feel kind of guilty about this, but I think what I'm going to do is try my hand at it. Um, <laughs> no. I, I feel almost as if I'm letting this side down, but I've also um, kind of realized, you know, I, I could do whatever I wanted. And, and if it doesn't work, then it's okay. <laughs> so um, I, I have three different sort of ideas in my head. Um, uh, one of them is a murder mystery. So, you know, I, I have to stick with my sides. And, and one of them is, is just a 15th century novel because the 15th century is my favorite period to teach, but their records are horrible. So I haven't done much work on that. And then, and then one is, is a, a really weird sort of science fiction thing with, with made it be, um, the delusions of living in 2020 with much time on my hands. But um, I don't know. I, finishing this book was... In many ways, I think, oh, this is what I've been trying to say. Um, it was a wonderful opportunity to look at a lot of different things. Like I said, the sources were amazing. And of course, one of the, there, as far as I know, there are no other sources like this, as complete as this. So, um, you know, I don't know how I would talk it given what I do. And um, so, I don't know. Um, I may get drawn back in. Um, the history, but at this point, um, I think I'm going to go with fiction, or at least. Oh, that's wonderful! Oh, thank you. You know, 
this this book feels like a capstone in some ways. Like I think you certainly you've got more to say as an historian, sure, but you really this is a nice way to kind of solidify and like bookend what you've been talking about your whole life. Thank you. So that was the idea, and 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 it was it was lovely. Um, I, I retired in 2015, and so one of these books I started the research in 2007, but um, I my computer crashed and I lost. Um, 65,000 words I had written. So I had to restart um, a, a few years, a couple of years ago, and in essence rewrite it, which of course at the time was crushing, but I think was good because sitting down to rewrite at this point in my life, it was sort of like, okay, what do you want to say? This won't affect your tenure, it won't affect promotions, it won't affect anything except what do you want to say? You spent your whole life doing this. What have you learned? So that was kind of what I was doing. And I think maybe I said what I had to say. That's wonderful. Uh, oh, my mic. That is fabulous. What? That's great. Wow. So thank you so much. I really enjoyed our chat. Um, I mean, if you write fiction, I won't be able to interview about interview you about that, but I will read it. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> I love the 15th century. So I'll read that. I mean, that would, that no, no, and murder mysteries, obviously. I think all historians are secretly murder mystery fans. I wonder, and this is how, how an effective murder could be done of each faculty members when they got really obnoxious. And it, would, it was just sort of, you know, an intellectual exercise. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are making retirement sound really good. It is. All right. It is good. Okay. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed our chat. And uh, take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye.